Good morning, everyone. I was, um, yesterday, I was watching a really good college football game. I love to watch college football, and I was watching uh, the Michigan-Minnesota game, and it was a close game all the way to the end. Minnesota had a chance to win the game at the end, and it's interesting when you watch a game, and, and, and it's at the very end where if two teams are close and they have a chance to score at the end, all of a sudden there's this sense of urgency because, because they're racing against what? The clock, right? So at the beginning, there's not that much sense of urgency, whether you're watching a basketball game or you're watching a football game. All of a sudden, the, the clock becomes this huge thing. And, and you're looking at your timeouts and how many timeouts and, and whether and if you throw down the middle of the field and, and, and then you're going to waste time. So you got to try to run out of bounds. And there's all these things that the coach has to think about at the very end of the game because all these things can affect the outcome of the game. And Minnesota had a chance to win the game. They had this great pass and uh, their player went into the end zone. They thought it was a touchdown. There was, I think, like nine seconds left on the clock. They thought they won the game. But then the nemesis, instant replay. And what they found is that his knee was down and he was on the one yard line. And so they had just seconds to try and score. Well, they tried once and they missed it. And now it's fourth down, two seconds left on their one inch, you know, inches to go to try to score. They could have kicked a field goal to tie the game and send it into overtime. But the coach of Minnesota says, we're going to go for it, which I totally respect. He was going to go for it. And they, they ran the ball and they stuffed the quarterback. Time ran out and they lost the game. Michigan players were going crazy and, and, and going nuts. And, 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 and I was thinking about that, that game. And I was thinking about how interesting it is how when time draws down to nothing, how we have a sense of urgency. And what's interesting is that they fell short just inches of going in to the end zone. And how many people are going to fall short at the end of their lives from going into eternity with Jesus Christ? And it's interesting how we live our lives and we don't look at the clock many times either until we get to the end of our lives or there's this sense of urgency or tragedy that happens in our lives or maybe you go to a funeral or maybe someone dies this unexpected death or maybe you have this unexpected health news and all of a sudden the stopwatch goes on. And we start to think about our lives a little bit more seriously. We, we start to think about our attorney. And for this interview with these people on the street, which very sad is for many, they just either didn't know or they didn't care or they really didn't understand. And, and for me being your pastor, I want you to have this assurity that you know, that you know, that you know what will happen to you after you die. That, that is, if I have to say anything for your lives, that is the number one question we have to get right because it's a matter of eternity. And so as we've been going through this series of tough questions, make sure you get last week's because we talked about are all faiths the same. So you can get that online or a CD. So make sure you, you get last week's message if you missed it. But this week we're going to talk about we're going to talk about what happens after we die. Now, as I research these tough questions, I really want to answer the questions that everybody's asking. Uh, you know, the, the worst thing you want to do is to speak on something that no one cares about, 
right? You, you really want to touch on things that people are asking or people are thinking about. And one question that I get asked very often, even amongst Christians, is what happens right after we die? And, and, and what's, what's eternity? Is there heaven and is there hell? It was interesting that um, CBS did a poll and what, what they said about the CBS poll is that 75% of Americans believed in the existence of heaven and hell. Very interesting. Um, uh, 17 uh, didn't believe in either. 8% believed that Hellbop Comet was coming to take them away. I remember Hellbop, right? Everybody, and your Nike sneakers and all that other stuff. So anyways, here, here's, here's what was really interesting. That same poll said that 82% believed that they were going to heaven. Two believed, 2% believed they were going to hell. I wonder who they were. Um, and then um, 9% didn't believe they were going to either place. And then 7% were waiting for the hell bop comment. I'm just teasing about that. Um, so wh- wh- what, is, what, is, what is really going on here? Well, obviously we see that many people obviously believe that they are going to heaven and many people believe, even if they believe in hell, that they're not going there. And how do we know for sure? How do we know who gets into heaven and who gets into hell? Can we know for sure? And, and what is really the real fear of death? Is it, is it death itself? Well, I don't really think so because we, you know, we all know that death is, 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 is part of, of life. And it was interesting that Norman Cousins made this interesting point concerning this where he said, it's living in constant fear of death that is the real enemy. And, and where am I going to go when I die? So really, it's the fear of death. It was interesting. I was watching a morning show last week, and they had this roundtable of these morning talk show people. And, and what they did is they played this game where they would just throw a question out at you. And you had to answer the question right away. And the question they asked to, to, to one of the, uh, the morning host people was this question. They asked the question is, um, would you rather know how you were going to die or when you were going to die? Answer it. And what was interesting about that was that that person was just speechless. They, they didn't know what to say. And what was interesting about that is they went around the room. No one else could really, they're all like, all the other questions, they were just, and it was interesting because what I noticed about that is that for those that are around this table really haven't really put a lot of thought into their eternity until someone posed the question. See, the time that we have on earth is short. How many know it's a vapor, right? All you know that what age am I turning in April? Y'all know I'm turning 40, right? Y'all know I'm turning 40, all right? Uh, time goes by fast. We just sent our oldest off to college. It's like, what happened, right? And you know we're not getting here, so we know it's inevitable, but we seem like to, to push that in the back of our mind, don't we? Don't, we don't want to think about it, but it's inevitable. And once you begin to think about it, you start to think, what is the real enemy here? It's living in constant fear of death. That is the real enemy. And one thing that Christianity offers that not one other world religion can offer, as, a, as we talked about last week, is the certainty of my eternity. And I want you to be secure in what you know about the afterlife and about your eternity. Because the question, that if, if it's posed to us, that 
Would you rather know how you're going to die or when you're going to die? For the Christian, it really doesn't matter. Because ultimately, our hope is in the one who conquered sin and death for us, and that's Jesus Christ. So the, the, the Bible says, Paul says that the sting of death because of Christ's resurrection has been removed. It, it, it doesn't have a power over our lives anymore because of the resurrection. Jesus, his life and resurrection has removed that sting and that fear out of our lives because we don't have to worry about that anymore because our life and our hope and our eternity is secure, not through me, not through my good works, not hoping that I've done a, enough good things, but my hope and my security is based on the one who conquered sin and death for me. And that's Jesus Christ. And that's where our hope is. So, so this, this, is, this we have to get right. And so the Bible does have a tremendous amount of things to say about the afterlife. And it has a lot to say about what happens and how we get there. So let's get this right. So I want to answer the question of what happens after we die. What happens after we die? And so here's the first thing I want you to see. First of all, we will all give an account. So the Bible talks about all of us giving an account. So what happens after we die? Well, the one thing we know is we will all give an account for our lives. Here's a great verse, Hebrews 9.27, that talks about this. And it says, just as it's appointed once for man to die, then after that comes what? Comes judgment. If you read the context of this verse within Hebrews um, chapter 9, the Hebrew writer is saying this, Jesus died once. He didn't die many deaths. Jesus didn't say, okay, I'm going to pay for your sins, but then I'm going to keep paying for them over and over again because I didn't get it right. Jesus died once for our sins and it was complete. It was finished it appeased God's righteous, holy demands. And now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. So what the Hebrew writer's argument is, is this, is man dies once, then judgment. Which means this, we have one life to live to get this right. So if our hope is, like some of the people said in the video, that, well, I can die, but then I can make up for it later, Right? Or maybe there's some type of purgatory that I can go through and hopefully someone back on earth is going to pray me through. Or um, maybe I can make it up in the afterlife because now I realized all the mistakes that I made in my life so then I can make it up in the afterlife. No, Jesus died once. He died for man's sins. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. After we die, the Bible says, then comes judgment. We will give an account for the knowledge that we have here on earth. So if you're hoping that maybe to get it all right in the afterlife, you're like, wow, uh, that crazy preacher was actually right about what he was talking about. All those times I sat in church, even though I really didn't believe him, but all those times I sat in church, he's actually right. And so now I can make up for it in the afterlife. This verse says, no, we can't. Because now we face judgment for what we know here on earth. We're going to be accountable for the knowledge we have. Um, going on a little bit further, here's the reason why. Hebrews 4.13, the Hebrew writer says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him, whom we must give what? An account. So the question is this, why? My life is my life, and I can live my life the way I want to live my life. But we can't. 
for this reason, because God is creator and we have to give an account for how we lived our lives and responded to his call. Now, the Apostle Paul goes a little bit deeper into this accountability and why are we accountable to God for the way we live our lives? And here's the reason why we're being judged. And Paul talks about this. And you can go, you can read the whole chapter later, but let me read you a couple passages here in Romans 1, 18 through 25. And here's the reason why we're accountable and, and, and that we have to give an account to God. Romans 1, 18 through 25 says this. Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all what ungodliness and unrighteousness of who men, which is all of us who by their unrighteousness did actually suppress the truth. They heard the truth of God. They knew he was creator. They knew of our wickedness and that we had to make that right before God. But we suppressed that truth. We said, nah, I'm going to just ignore it. He says in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. Meaning this, the moment you look up at the stars, you are accountable. That that's God's general revelation. He has given us this general revelation that he exists. Now, we can sit there and say, well, the, the, the stars, and, the, and we're going to talk about this later in one of our questions of, uh, in a couple of weeks, talking about can science and Christianity mix. We're going to tackle that question. That's fun. That took me like 18,000 hours to do, but it's fun, and we're going to do that. We're going to tackle it. Pray for me because I have a P for a brain, so, so pray for that message. But here's what, here's what Paul's saying. The moment you look up at God's creation and you see the majesty of his created power, we suppress the truth by saying, oh, this was all natural causes. This just happened by happenstance. What was just a blob turned into Bob. I mean, that's what we basically say. We just say, well, this was this and this is this. What was chaotic turned into this chaotic universe turned into something that was formed and now has order. And so what man has done is they've tried to suppress the truth and tried to make up what they want about creation. But God has shown it to us very plainly. And so he goes on, on to say, because of his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, that there is a designer behind everything. I mean, everything is so complex and works in perfect unity. We talk about these anthropic principles that everything, the way the axis of the earth is, the way Jupiter is set, he, Jupiter acts like a, a giant vacuum to, to keep huge asteroids from colliding with the earth. God has set this whole universe up and, and earth is so specific in the way it's designed that, that actually we can breathe and have life on it. This is a privileged planet we live on. Every breath we have is from God. And so it's a very privileged planet. And this is what, what he's saying. But what happens is these things have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been, have been made. So they are what? Without excuse. Every single person on this planet is without excuse because of God's general revelation of his creative power. And we have this special revelation that we can see through the person of Jesus Christ that points to who God is. So what does he say? Well, here's what God does. He says, we're out, we are without excuse. So he says in verse 21, verse 21, for although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or gave thanks to him, but they became futile actually in their own thinking. The word futile there actually means foolish. We thought we were so wise, but the, the more wise we became in our own eyes, the more futile it became. And he says, and their foolish hearts were actually darkened because of this. Claiming to be wise, they actually became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images uh, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And here's the kicker. Are you ready? Verse 24 is the kicker in this whole thing. Paul says, therefore, God gave them up in, in, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the, the, not, not the creator, but these creatures rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. So now we think, well, pastor, is it too late? I mean, I mean, Paul's really putting the hammer down, putting the gavel down and saying, this is, this is, this is the judgment. Is it, is it too late? No, it's not too late. Thank God we still live in an age of grace where God is still reaching out to his creation. I think of, when I think of this passage of Paul, I think of the prodigal son in Luke 15, where, where the, the father knows what the son is going to do. And so what the son does is he acts foolish, doesn't he? He takes his father's inheritance, which was only to be reserved for after the father dies. So the prodigal son takes this um, inheritance, basically saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. So he, what does he do? He takes all his dad's inheritance and blows it all on loose living and immorality, doesn't he? Basically, the father gave him over, gave him and says, do what you want. I'm going to let you do it. I'm going to let you have your fill. I'm going to let you go to Las Vegas and just sin to no end, right? I'm going to let you do it. I'm going to let you have your sins full. And that's exactly what happened to this prodigal son. He went, he, he blew all the money, loose living, loose everything until he found himself in the mire with a bunch of pigs and says, I'm going to go back and see if I can just be a servant, a, a hired hand for my father. And he does. And as he goes back, the father's waiting for him. He sees him in a dis- distance. And what happens? He welcomes him back. He kills the fattened calf. He, he puts a ring on his finger. He welcomes him back and restores his son through his grace. So is there hope for us today? Yes. But what Paul says here is, he goes, I've basically handed man over as, as, a, as a sentence or a judgment on man saying, okay, you want to sin? Go ahead. See where it gets you. It's like the children of Israel in the desert when they were sick of the man and they said, well, we want quail. And what does God do? He gave them so much quail, they were gagging on it. They said, no more quail, right? Isn't that what happens? Sometimes, listen to me, sometimes we shouldn't wish for what we want because you might just get it and it might not turn out the way you think it is. Ravi Zacharias has this great quote when he says, the saddest moment in a person's life, especially if they're in an adulterous affair or or whatever it is, he goes, is that morning they wake up and they realize this isn't what I wanted it to be. 
That's the loneliest moment in someone's life. They thought this was going to fulfill them. They thought this was going to be the greatest thing until one day they wake up and they say, you know what? This isn't what I thought it was. C.S. Lewis has this great quote where he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. So basically what God is saying in our own desire to not know the truth, he's saying, okay, let your will be done and see what happens. But thank God we have a God that will still take us back when our hearts are repentance towards him. Amen. So what is, what is the key to get out of this judgment? Because the Romans 1 seems so hopeless. Well, the only way to avoid the judgment of God for our souls is through the very person of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel message. This is the hope that we have. Because what Jesus did was he paid the price for our judgment and our neglect of God. By becoming our substitute, he took the penalty for our sin. And when I put my faith in Jesus and what he's done, I find forgiveness from God and it changes my status from actually an object of God's wrath that Paul talks about to actually a friend of God now. And for the follower of Jesus Christ, we will have to give an account for our lives and we will be rewarded for the works that we've done in Christ. For we're saved by faith alone, but there's this fruit in our salvation that is seen in my good works that are done towards God for the glory of God, that are done in the name of Jesus Christ. So what is clear here? What is clear that we see in the word of God is that we will spend eternity in one of two places. And the Bible talks about a place of paradise and heaven for those that have been redeemed and saved from their sins. And then it talks about these eternal damnation or hell for those who are still under God's judgment. Now, the issue here is that there is no third option. There is no door number three. There's not another option for us that the Bible clearly talks about. And I'll have to be honest with you because this is hard because if we're going to be truthful and honest, we have to see what the Bible says about this. And, and as much of attention this is for me and the way I grapple with it, I want my life to be so shaken that my life, I live my life in the two minute drill. You see, what a two-minute drill is, is at the end of the game where the coach works with the team. I'm practicing with them. The last two minutes of the game, if they have a chance to win the game, it's a two-minute drill. And, I, and I'm sorry to say that most of us, including myself, don't live in the two-minute drill. We don't. There's not this sense of urgency. And if we understand clearly what the word of God says, then there should be an urgency that is put into our heart about eternity and what am I doing about it? Not only for my life, but for those that are around me. And so one of the most vivid realities of heaven and hell was a story that was given by Jesus. And it's recorded for us in Luke 16. And this story revolves around a rich man who dies and a beggar named Lazarus, Lazarus, and, and not the same one, but a different Lazarus. Uh, a rich man goes to a place of torment where Lazarus goes and he's at Abraham's side and he's comforted. And listen to the words of Jesus here in Luke 16. This is what is said, but it says, but Abraham said, child, and remember, there's this huge chasm. One is, is, is eternally condemned. The, the other is living in righteousness in this paradise. And so Abraham says, child, remember that you in your lifetime, lifetime, what you did now, received many good things. And Lazarus in the like manner did, did in, like, in the like manner, bad things, but now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. 
And besides all this, between you and us is this great chasm that has been fixed, which means it cannot be moved. It cannot be changed. This is the reality. And in order for those who would pass from, um, from here to you may not be able, you cannot cross this chasm. It's too late. You have died. That none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, listen, not, not, now he's, he's in the two-minute drill. He's starting to sense urgency, the rich man. He says, I beg you, Father, to send me to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that I may warn them. I, I want to warn my brothers, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said this. They have, listen to this closely. He said, they have Moses and the prophets Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, this is important, grab this. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, I'm going to go off on a tangent here, so don't shoot me, okay? This is me, pastor, talking to you, okay? Don't, don't shoot me, okay? I have no problems with books and movies that are written about people that have gone into the afterlife and have come back. No problems with it, okay? If people want to write about it, that's their experience. Here's my problem. My problem with it, if we're using that solely to convince ourselves about the afterlife, we need to be careful. Because what Jesus is saying here, if they don't believe the, prophet and, uh, the prophets and Moses who are written in the word of God, what makes them think they're going to believe someone that has come back? You see, that's where we need to depend on the word of God to change people's hearts, not necessarily people's experiences. And I'm not denying their experiences, but we need to depend on the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. So before anyone misunderstands me, I'm not saying if you read those books, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm not saying they're not interesting to understand or understand these things that have happened. But a lot of people have afterlife experiences besides Christians, right? And can say, well, this is my experience. This is their, and we can all have these uh, arguments about it. But what I'm saying is faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We need to know the word of God and we need to speak the word of God because that's what's going to convince people of their need for a savior. Amen. That was free. That was absolutely free for everybody. Okay. Now, what can we understand from this story? Here's, here's the point. Here's what we can understand from the story. Heaven and hell are real places. This is what, here's what we can learn. Heaven and hell are real. Okay. And I know this is a debate today that even many evangelical pastors are walking away from this, but I, I, For the life of me, I cannot read the word of God and step away from this and say that they're not real places. Jesus said they are real places. And here's the other thing. We cannot cross over. There was a great chasm. And and the other point here is after you die, we know that there are no second chances. After you die, there are no second chances. So, So just realize that there are no second chances. So here's the thing. What is the issue with with men not hearing it or not receiving this. Well, receiving the gospel message is not necessarily due to the lack of evidence, but a hardened heart. Because the evidence is all around us, isn't it? 
Isn't it interesting that even the Pharisees and the Sadducees saw all these evidences of Jesus and his miracles, raising Lazarus from the dead? Did they still believe? Many, many did not believe. Why? Because their hearts were hardened. You see, the rich man trusted his things and what he accomplished over God. And these things became idols to him. And they, they, they transplanted a, 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 a wanting to know God and worship him with worshiping the things that they had. And when it was too late for this rich man, then he felt the urgency. Then he felt the urgency to do something about it and go back. But the story says it was too late. It was too late. So the question is, the, the, the question I want to answer here, because I get asked this all the time. Pastor, what happens right, right after we die? Do we go into some soul sleep? Do we just, what happens right after we die? Um, um, do we go to some holding tank waiting for the final judgment? Are we, are we sent to a temporary heaven or hell? What does the Bible actually say about this? Well, here, here's what the Bible says about this. For the believer in Christ, when they die, they go directly to heaven. Now, we know in the future, as we read in the book of Revelation, there is going to be a new heaven and new earth that God restores all the things that have been broken because of sin. But for the believer in Christ, we go direct, directly to heaven. Isn't that good news? We go right to heaven, okay? So everybody calm down, okay? We go right to heaven. Okay, let me give you a couple of scriptures here to, to tell you. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8 says, So we are always of good courage, and we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with who? The Lord. So what Paul's saying, the moment you're away from your body, when you die, you, you go to be at home with the Lord. Uh, Paul reiterates this in Philippians 1.23, where he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to be departed and to be with who? To be with Christ, for that is far better. But he knew that God was doing a work through him on earth. Jesus told the man who was dying next to him on the cross who put his faith in Christ. He said to him in Luke 23, 43, which I love this. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in what? Paradise. Okay. So the next question is, that's easy. The next question is, what happens to the unbeliever? Okay. What happens to the unbeliever is that they are in this temporary realm of judgment and condemnation waiting for their judgment at the great white throne where, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and will give an account for their life. And after that, the Bible says, is the lake of fire, which the book of Revelation describes for us, which God created for the devil and his angels. So they are waiting for their ultimate judgment. And this ultimate creation of hell, this lake of fire that is reserved for the devil and his angels and for those that do iniquity. And so uh, Jesus uh, tells us about this in Matthew 25, 41, where he says, he will say to those on his left as he's judging those, he says, depart from me, you cursed, into what? Eternal, eternal fire prepared for who? The devil and his angels. And so believers in Christ will ultimately be allowed to go into this new heaven and new earth, which Revelation 21, 1 through 4 talks about. And I love these words because John gives us a glimpse of what this is going to look like. And here's what John says. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
for the first for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away and, and there was, and the sea was no more. And I, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Everybody say amen. Amen to that, right? If you want to dig a lot deeper into this, there's a great book, very exhaustive book on heaven by Randy Elkhorn called, called Heaven. And Randy Elkhorn's a great author. And if you want to get, get his book on heaven, it is fabulous, fabulous book on heaven. So here, here's the deal. What's the big idea here? What, what should we do with all this? Um, we know, we, we've been told the truth. And it, it's, as hard as it is for me to wrestle with that truth and realizing, hey, I've got loved ones. I've got family members, coworkers, people that I care about that don't know Jesus. And, and what do we do with this? This is, this is, this is hard. Here, here's, here's what this should do to all of us. It should give us greater compassion. We should have a greater sense of urgency. And this should bother us. If it doesn't bother you, then there's something wrong. You see, the choices we do make have eternal consequences. And so this should bother us. It's like the rich man after he died, he then had a sense of urgency. I remember reading the story of the Costa Concordia, uh, the ship that partially sank um, in Italy. If you guys remember that story, um, it's an interesting thing. I have a picture of it here for you. Um, the Costa Concordia in January 2012 at 9.45 p.m. under calm seas struck a rock which tore a 100-foot gash on the port side, flooded the engine room, resulting in the loss of power. Now, here's the deal. This is a very tragic event because even though the ship was sinking very slowly... Complete loss of power and close proximity to shore. The call to abandon ship was not given until an hour after the initial impact. Maritime law requires 30 minutes and it took over six hours to evacuate people. And because of that error, 32 people died. They said that they could have easily saved the people because of that lack of judgment, lack of error, 32 people died. Now, what happened and why did people die? Lack of urgency. Not living in the two-minute drill. Um, I was dropping, Kathleen and I were dropping Colby back off to college. He had a couple days off last week for um, fall break, and we were dropping him back off to school, and I was walking down his hallway, and there's this quote by Charles Spurgeon on the wall of their dorm hallway, and it said this. And I've never, I like Charles Spurgeon. I, read a lot, I like reading a lot of his stuff, and I've never heard this quote. This quote shook me. It says this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertion and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. When I was newly saved at 16 years old, there was a singer I loved. His name was Steve Camp. 
He's actually a pastor today. And he wrote this song. It was called Run to the Battle. And there's a line in his song that always just always pierced my heart. And this was the line to his song called Run to the Battle. It starts, the song starts like this. Some people want to live within the sounds of chapel bells. But I want to run a mission, a yard from the gates of hell. See, I, I think what happens is, and we all, we all do it. I do it. We all do it. We get comfortable in our lives. We get lackadaisical. We lose our passion, don't we? And my prayer for you is that God would reunite, would reignite your passion for souls. That, that you would begin to really pray for those that you know need to hear this gospel message. Now listen, we are just the messengers. What they do with the message is what they do with it. God is the one that does the saving. The Holy Spirit's the one that does the conviction. But we are the ambassadors. We are the messengers that have to bring this message. And I believe if we knew that Jesus was coming back this afternoon, how many of you would start making some phone calls? How many of you would start living your life a little bit differently? We would, wouldn't we? But that's the way we need to live our life, with this sense of urgency. And before we take communion, this is two things that I just want you to do. A couple of things I just, I want to just kind of encourage you today. If there's a lack of urgency in your heart, I want you to pray for your lack of urgency. Say, God, just help me with my lack of urgency. I, I admit, I'm, I've, I've gotten a little cold with that. I've gotten... Um, comfortable and stagnant and I've kind of lost my sense of urgency for souls. Maybe you're here today and, and you've been kind of putting off your walk with Christ or, or really coming to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You say, hey, tomorrow's tomorrow and you really haven't put a lot of thought into it and I'm here to tell you today's the day of salvation and you can come to Christ today and give your life to him. So don't put it off till tomorrow. We're not promised tomorrow. And here's the second thing I, I just want to in, encourage you to do. For the next month, I want, you to, I want you to take five people that you know do not know Jesus and you're going to put them on a list and you're going to faithfully pray for them every single day for the next month. Today is what? November 1st. So it's a good day to start it, right? And you're going to pray for them for the whole month of December, faithfully, every day. Put them on a list. I don't care if you have to put a sticky note in your car, sticky note on your refrigerator, sticky note in the refrigerator, right? Because you go there every five minutes, right? So whatever reminds you to pray for those people. And I want you to put on that list, I'm going to do all I can to invite them to church. Now, whether they come, they don't, but I'm going to do all I can to invite them to church and I'm going to pray for them and I'm going to pray that God opens up the door that I can share with them. I believe that when you, we get serious about prayer, God changes our heart. God changes those situations. I believe there's fervency in our prayers that moves the hand of God. And we need to be serious about, about this because we're not promised tomorrow. You see, as we go to the Lord's table, that, that's what Jesus did. That's what he accomplished for us. That he gave his life, he shed his blood so that we can find forgiveness of our sins and not just keep that to ourselves, 
but to share that with the world, that there is a Savior that loves them, and all who come to him, he will no wise cast out. And so as we take communion today, let's just remember the sacrifice as we take the cup and the bread, that we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us so that we could find newness of life and forgiveness of our sins, so that in turn we can take that message and share it with others of what Christ has done in our hearts. So if you're here today and and maybe you don't know Jesus as as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to ask you as we pray, you can do that right at your seat and that by all means you can take communion with us as, as as the family of God. And so let's pray and just ask God just to touch our hearts and and maybe as we pray, um, God is laying somebody on your heart right now to pray for them. So even at your seat as we pray, just lift that person up to the Lord. Just say, God, um, you lay so-and-so on my heart and I'm going to start praying for them now and asking God just to work in their hearts and in their lives. So Lord, we come before you now. And Lord, we don't depend on our own strength, our own lives, but on you. And Lord, the reality is there, there, there is two ways that we can go. And Lord, we know that you didn't create heaven f- or, or you didn't create hell for, for, for just people just to go to because you were mean. You created for the devil and his angels and for those that don't come to you to find forgiveness for our waywardness. We're, we're the ones that are at fault. We're the ones that need forgiveness. And by your grace and mercy, you did everything possible to reach out to us and to restore our broken souls. So I pray for everyone here, for anyone that's not made a commitment to Christ, I pray that they would do that right now as they call out to your name. Lord, we pray for those that are in our hearts right now that, that need to come to know you as their Lord and Savior. We give them to you. And so, Lord, as we take communion today, we remember where Jesus says, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body that was given for you. This is my blood that was given for you. This is the new covenant between me and the Father that now establishes now establishes that relationship because it's done through my sacrifice. So we remember and we thank you and we, we realize that you're coming back, not as a baby, but as King of kings and Lord of lords to rule and reign over this earth, your creation. Thank you for saving us. But God, break our hearts for souls. We just give you our lives now in Jesus' mighty name. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.